0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Irish College of General Practitioners. I'm Helen McVeigh, Quality and Policy Manager here in ICGP, and with me today is Dr. Deirdre Johnston from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences in Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Baltimore. Deirdre trained in medicine in Galway, interned in Ennis, and after a residency in Galway, moved to Alberta, Canada, where she's had a stellar career focused particularly on psychiatry for the elderly. Based now in Baltimore, we're taking advantage of Deirdre being home on a private visit to ask about her work and learn something from her huge wealth of experience. So welcome Deirdre. Thank you. And perhaps we can start by just finding out a little bit about how you became interested in geriatric psychiatry services. Well, um, I
1: think I could give you two answers to that. One is my mother was a public health nurse in Canvara County, Galway, and I I actually would go out on visits with her when I was a child. So that was very interesting and fun. I loved meeting the elderly people. But the other was when I was in medical school, I realized we were all getting older Mm -hmm. and there was going to be a growing elderly population that was going to need health care. And I thought, well, that's the obvious area to go into. And I was interested in psychiatry. So when I had um, trained in psychiatry, in Galway, um, and I my plan was to go into geriatric psychiatry. So when I went to Canada, that's what I focused on and, mm-hmm. and spent my career in, essentially.
0: Yes. And forensic psychiatry, you've done some work on so that. I have. What, what is,
1: what's that? So forensic psychiatry, it covers a, a, a range of things, including um, criminal psychiatry in relation to criminal cases but also mm-hmm. civil cases but the way I started out in that was occupational psychiatry. I was doing some consulting in Alberta. I was actually at Wake Forest University um, for several years, 10 years uh, from 95 to 2005 and we were getting requests to do consulting for various civil and criminal cases and I had, as I had done occupational psychiatry it turns out I, I was able to study for and complete the forensic psychiatry boards and um, basically the department needed me to do something so I okay. did it. So I, I ran this forensic psychiatry program there which mm-hmm. was basically a consultation program. Okay. Uh, very interesting um, but I went back to geriatric psychiatry uh, you know I was still doing
0: geriatric psychiatry. Oh okay. So um, and then I went back to geriatric psychiatry after that. Okay and then um, for example in 2004 you set up the Kate Mills Snyder geriatric psychiatry outreach program the gold program in north carolina is that right yes so maybe um you could tell us a little bit about what led you to do that and, sure. and what outreach means in that context
1: so um again i always like to go out and see patients even though it's not always supported or funded and so uh i had a patient who had taken to her bed and wouldn't get out of it and her family asked me if I would go out and see her Mm -hmm. and I did and she had a lot of medical issues as well so I saw her and treated her at home and helped her feel better and helped her you know deal with her medical issues as well you know as treating her depression and um, the family were so grateful they actually endowed a a program they endowed this program Uh, they gave us $5.5 million of an endowment mm-hmm. uh, at Wake Forest to establish this program. So I set up an interdisciplinary team, um, mental health team, to mm-hmm. go out and do home visits to elderly in the area who uh, were homebound. Fantastic. And it was wonderful, and it was just so wonderful to have the opportunity to do that. And it's still it's still going strong. Still going. Uh, it's still with some of the people that I started out with there. Okay. Yeah, I, I went on to Hopkins then about a year or so later, but okay. left that there.
0: And then, and you've obviously spent a lot of time working on dementia, and mm-hmm. one of your many publications I noticed was about PTSD and World War II veterans, and are they mm-hmm. more likely to have dementia? or
1: So, um, that's a growing body of research. Okay. Uh, people have started to pay attention to it, but where I got involved in that was I was working at a veterans hospital and we had a lot of World War II veterans, and this was in the late 90s, and I began to notice that the behavioral symptoms that are World War II, veterans were presenting with um where they had a certain character um often sudden violent outbursts um and uh sometimes quite complex behaviors uh we had one man for instance he had built a fort his wife had gone out shopping and he built a fort out of the furniture and the man was had dementia Uh, when she came back he shot her multiple times with several guns and she survived he wow. had no recollection of that.
0: Okay.
1: And this was the case that made me really interested in this. And he was in our hospital, and he was doing some horticultural activities with the, and a very sweet, mild-mannered man, you mm-hmm. know, really. Uh, and they were planting tulips. Okay. And he suddenly became not the sweet, mild-mannered man. He actually grabbed another patient by the neck and started to choke him. And the, um, the person who was working with him took him, managed to calm him down take him away from there. And the man's told a story about what had happened to him in the war and he had been in a tulip field with his platoon they were cornered by the enemy and the soldiers knowing that, that the enemy knowing that they had cornered them uh, picked tulips and put them in the barrels of their guns and came towards them Wow. And I mean, just, you know, you, you couldn't make it up. I mean, it was really oh. a terrible thing. Um, but the poor man, that's what he saw when he was planting the tulips. Mm-hmm. So I thought, my goodness, what stories. And there were other stories like that, yes. pretty amazing ones. But they were quite dramatic and complex. And I realized there's something different about their symptoms mm-hmm. when they have dementia. So I don't know about, I, well, there is evidence that exposure to stress increases your risk of dementia. We know that now. But there's also this other thing that happens, the different character of the behavioral symptoms. Uh, okay. And the other thing was that that was PTSD. Mm-hmm. But the PTSD diagnosis didn't, wasn't, wasn't uh, identified until the 1980s. Until 1980, actually, in the okay. DSM-2, the mm-hmm. Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of, of yes. Disorders the second edition so that's when it was first identified so these men had if they had a diagnosis at all they had other diagnoses before that and so they weren't known to have ptsd so tracking down all these guys in the system and trying to find who who has ptsd and what you know try to put in preventive care Mm -hmm. uh, was kind of impossible we just had to watch out for them and interesting i'm so sorry to go on at length about this but it's very (laughs) i I find it yeah so so the same um year that i published that paper subsequently about four or five more papers were published by other people observing the same Same phenomenon and also identifying the fact that there was no research on it Mm -hmm. so there is research going on now about that that, but that was um it was quite quite an interesting uh, thing to experience and to see yes Mm
0: -hmm. and you've also worked with for example rural nurses Mm -hmm. and you've used Things called telepsychiatry yep. consultations, and so how do those work, and how reliable are they? So
1: that was another interesting experience. Um, I'm doing it now; it's very reliable. I'm doing the current mo- modern-day version of telepsychiatry at Hopkins, and and it's you know it, it it's it works very well. The mm-hmm. patients love it, especially older patients because mm-hmm. they don't have to leave their home. And and if okay. you're taking care of somebody who has dementia, mm. finding somebody to be with that patient. That you know the person while you're going to the doctor yourself or taking them to the doctor, yes. particularly if it's something that the, the patient is known to the doctor, mm-hmm. uh, you you know what the issues are. But you need to check in on them. It's so helpful to be able to do a a video visit with them. What's a video visit? Video visit. So they can see you. They can see me, I can see them, and and they can talk to me, and they don't have to leave their home. So the patients actually love it. We started back in the late 90s as well Mm -hmm. um, with really pretty primitive equipment, and I I was very sceptical. But we put a computer with a webcam in a nursing home, and I used to have to drive out there. It was an hour's drive each way, so I could only see a couple of patients, and it was kind of a scramble. And then you'd go back, a week later and nobody would know what had been done in response to your consult so this this way um a nurse was assigned to be with the patient at each visit so the nurse was accountable at the video visit once the video visit was done the nurse was accountable for following through on Mm -hmm. your recommendations so it turned out that it was way more effective Mm-hmm. Because there was somebody accountable, mm-hmm. and you could see the patient uh the following week and get the update talk to the family if they were there if they wanted to talk to you uh, so i found I was really really uh that I was sold on telepsychiatry after that, okay. and so now we've been doing it with our patients in outreach in Baltimore from Mind at home, which i can mm-hmm. tell you about if you want, and um for some of our other outreach community mental health programs yes, I well. wanted
0: to talk to you a little bit more about um dementia patients you've obviously done a huge amount of work on that and about Um, it seems to me from your body of work that the key thing is to try and keep them at home as long as possible and what are the key things that make a difference to those patients in order to keep them at home
1: so most of them are relying on a caregiver Mm -hmm. and providing support to that caregiver and helping them access resources they need those really are the key things yes training the caregiver to cope with what they're dealing with because they're the person that they've cared about and loved all their life is changing Mm. and is behaving in ways that are very upsetting to them or is just not able to do stuff for themselves anymore and Mm. they have to basically become that person's brain and have to think for that person over time. In the beginning you know the person with dementia actually can learn about and understand and maybe adapt in many ways Mm -hmm. um, while they still have the capacity so that the the progression through the condition is a bit smoother for them. So that's another thing you can do is help them early, but helping the caregiver is key.
0: Okay, yes, that's interesting. And you've uh, been very involved in a program called Mind Maximizing Independence Mm -hmm. um, for patients with memory loss and dementia, so... That's clearly tied in with helping them at home.
1: Yes. Maximising independence at home is the full name of it.
0: Yes. And um, is there anything in addition to minding the caregiver that helps maximise that independence?
1: So what we do is we go in and we do a uh, um, dementia-related needs assessment. So Mm -hmm. we've created an instrument to to identify their needs across a number of domains of Mm -hmm. daily life and um, also the caregiver's needs. Yes. So we... Do this assessment in home, and then we create care plan that is tailored around those needs. Okay. And we trained non-clinical workers to actually work with these families uh, under the supervision of clinicians. Yes. And so there's they have so so they're they're less expensive the memory care coordinators. Um, but they're supported by clinicians and it, it's all about establishing the relationship with the caregiver and the person with dementia to be a resource to them and to know how to find resources they need yes. and then to contact the clinician if there's an issue that they, and then we use um, we used the telepsychiatry for that too. They yes. could bring us into the home fairly flexibly uh, mm-hmm. by carrying an iPad with cellular service into the home.
0: Okay. Yes, so that's answered some of my other questions about how you uh, manage all of that and it's clearly resource intensive because it's pretty much one-on-one for each Um, um, caregiver or is it? So
1: no. Um, So we train memory care coordinators um, to work with multiple uh, caregivers and people with dementia, so it's not one-on-one. They find resources, they look for resources that that are readily available as well as finding more esoteric resources. Um, you know finding out what that person needs in that situation and finding a way to to get them to connect them with that resource mm-hmm. and it may not you know often problems that don 't start out medical at all end up being medical okay so if you can get in there and, and make sure that there 's nothing for them to fall over and that the place is lit properly and and that that they have meals to eat and that yes. the caregiver gets a break from time to time. They may actually be able to stay out of hospital and stay at home longer. And in fact, a lot of the visits to the emergency room uh, are when the caregiver doesn't know what to do next. Mm -hmm. They've just run out of, they're unsupported and they don't know what to do. If you put a support in there, Mm -hmm. then you actually may reduce their visits to the emergency room, reduce hospitalizations, and Mm -hmm. reduce uh, placement.
0: Going back to how you find those patients, we've talked a lot about Mm -hmm. you've already found the patients, but you've done some work as well on actually finding and diagnosing the patients, presumably, Mm -hmm. so that you can do that earlier. Yes. And um, we've got the GDPR here, Mm -hmm. so we've got to be careful about how we go about doing that. Do you have um, any suggestions about ways to ensure that you're protective of uh, people's privacy privacy and their data? So so
1: we have HIPAA and we have data safety monitoring boards for research. Um, So a number of things. Up to now, this has been research. Yes. Okay. And now we're actually replicating it in a real world setting. Okay. So we're working with a healthcare organization. It's a managed care organization mm-hmm. and they have access obviously because they're the managed care organization that, that okay. funds their care. Yes. They have access to the patients and the data and Uh, also they interact with the primary care doctors okay so so they're taking it we're training them and helping them implement it but they're managing their own data within a closed system Mm -hmm. Um, we will be analyzing data at the end but it'll all be Be, de-identified data we won't have access to a person patient specific yes
0: yes um and Are there any ways that you can, I think you've already alluded to this, where you Mm -hmm. would train, for example, interested volunteers Mm -hmm. or caregivers to do some of the assessments or the supports? So, Um, yes. Yeah, you've already talked about that. And there is one
1: other thing we're doing. In addition to that, another project that has arisen from Mind at Home is called Memory Core. Okay. And so we're now training volunteers, uh, retirees, as volunteers to go into the homes and do tailored activities that are tailored specifically to this person who has dementia trained Mm -hmm. by an occupational therapist, the volunteer will be trained by an occupational therapist and uh, the caregiver gets a break. So yes, they, okay. they go in for, I think it's eight hours a week for a mm-hmm. three month period. And this is research right now. We're just getting rolling with it. We're working with the Alzheimer's Association on it. Okay. And with AARP, American Association for Retired People, on this one. Okay. And uh, we've just gotten funded earlier this year and we're now starting. We're going to be we're training our workers. We're just starting to recruit our volunteers.
0: Okay.
1: And uh, we expect to start enrolling patients in January. It's based on something called Experience Core where uh, one of our colleagues, Linda Freed, trained retired people to go into schools and work with children. Oh, right, okay, yes. So we're doing this, but with people who have dementia. And we're going to be measuring outcomes in the, the patient, and mm-hmm. in the caregiver, and also Very in the retiree. Important.
0: Okay. So to that see if it improves like everybody's
1: quality of life and all that. That so. sounds like a fantastic project. Oh, we're, we're excited.
0: And have you had any occasions where, you must have some where there's maybe some concern about the the proxy informant who's giving information the caregiver maybe for the person who has memory loss or dementia are there some things that we need to be aware of in terms of the reliability of what someone else is telling you about another individual right
1: so we use um, first of all you know if the person if the patient themselves is still able to tell you stuff we go yes we we rely on their input Um, all of our Teams are trained to recognize any situations where there's abuse or neglect or exploitation. Mm. Uh, So they're very attuned to that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and most of the time in these situations, um, a caregiver who is looking for help. Mm-hmm. is somebody usually who's committed to trying to make things work. Yes. And most of the time, in our experience, they didn't exaggerate stuff. In fact, a lot of the time they were kind of minimizing, you mm-hmm. know. The real, the real, Yes. And so uh, that really wasn't a, a huge issue. When we were there. We were in the homes. We could see what was mm-hmm. happening. So it wasn't like they were telling us something on the phone that we had to take for granted or just, yes. you know, take it at face value. No, we were going into the homes and, mm-hmm. and, and, and could see for ourselves and could watch the relationship. Relationship between the people, and we uh, we also would work with a legally authorized representative from a consent perspective. If the person with okay. dementia was unable to give consent, yes, we would. Um, the legally authorized representative would give consent, and they would have to give assent. If it was clear they were uncomfortable with us being in the home, or they didn't, or you know they didn't want us there, we we would not.
0: Yes, go you in
1: for, you know. Yes. and this is research, remember, mm. but that we were doing now in the real world. Um, we'll try to figure out ways to to make this work in the real world yes that's where we're at right now. yes it's quite
0: Mm. it's it's complex yeah um and is there a time then clearly you're talking about it's really beneficial to keep people with memory loss and dementia in the home as long as Mm -hmm. possible there must come a time when it's no longer sustainable for that to happen so, are there standard or obvious signifiers that would indicate, okay, now is the time? What are the key times? So, a
1: lot depends on the caregiver. And okay. so, supporting the caregiver can actually extend the amount of time the person's able to stay at home and Make the empower the caregiver to actually be able to do the things they need to do and 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 you know most of the time people want to stay at home they mm-hmm. want to take Absolutely. care of the person at home um so a lot of it has to do with the caregiver's capacity now, if it comes to the point where the caregiver where the caregiver's health is endangered by yes. doing this, then you really do have to kind of say it's time you know yes, unless you can put in adequate supports in the home nursing care, etc that can allow the the caregiver not to have to lift the person you you know there there are things you can do to 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 make it possible for them to continue but you know if the caregiver looks like they're they're just not able to keep going um then you you know that's when you would talk about transition and you may
0: have some cases where it's clear to to you visiting that it is really time for the transition and there may be resistance to that from the caregiver the patient themselves yeah and (laughs) <laughs> you what know, What are the skills you need in order to try and negotiate that situation
1: um so that you see that is the value of this this, this program really um, mm-hmm. because you build a relationship early
0: yes okay and
1: and so you it's all negotiation from the very beginning because from the very minute we walk in the door we're seeing things that need to be done and yes. and, and of course the family doesn't always want to do what you think they should do, yes. so you you have to work a lot on building a relationship, working towards what they want, and trying to um trying to help them. Be in charge
0: mm-hmm.
1: and not go in and tell them what to do. That's yes. that's key here, and um, and so by the time yeah, and by the time you're at a point where there where transition is appropriate, you've built a relationship where there's generally kind of agreement on where we're going and what mm-hmm. should happen next, and there's trust there. And yes, so that's what you're that's what you're aiming for.
0: Yes, um, I
1: don't know if that answered your question. Oh, it
0: does absolutely, yeah. and trust I think is yeah, the key. Trust is key. Yeah. And uh, clearly in Ireland we are a relatively young population Mm -hmm. and we are ageing rapidly so we are going to be facing into um, the need for Mm -hmm. a lot of care for uh, older people and people with memory loss Mm -hmm. and dementia. Are there any key things that you think that we can learn based on your experience from your research and your many years working in these projects? Are there a top? The top few things. So I think, uh, raising, think
1: about. raising awareness and destigmatizing is, is is very important because a lot of the time dementia is not diagnosed. People don't look for it because prof- professionals don't look for it in their patients because mm-hmm. there's the perception there's nothing you, you can do. And okay. of course, even though there's no cure for it, there's a whole lot you can do as I've everything I've just yes, been describing. So, but but so first of all, people have to get over the fear of diagnosing it mm-hmm. and the resistance uh, the resistance to looking for it. And destigmatize it publicly. So make the public aware this is a condition that happens, mm-hmm. and you know, involve the Alzheimer's Association. They've been yes. we've been working with them. They're wonderful. Yes. Public awareness, professional awareness, I think are, are, are very important. And then once it's known that this is you can have dementia and be at home uh, for you know, and it's okay. It's not a shame to have dementia. Yes. And in a lot of retirement communities in the U.S., for instance, it's it's. Um, People will have dementia, they're wandering around, and, and the other people will ignore the fact that they have dementia, they won't talk about it, and then all of a sudden, they'll be moved over to the dementia unit. They've gone over to the other side. Okay. You know, so literally, they, you know, I've heard it called, she went over to the other side. So, uh, and there's this terrible stigma associated with it. First of all, I think, because people are afraid they're going to develop it themselves in that age yes. group, but yes. also um because it's kind of an unknown thing to a lot of people they don't know what it is they they don't they don't understand it it's scary it affects behaviors um so i think it would be less scary and Mm -hmm. it would be maybe easier to manage if people were more open about it that it happens and you don't you know having a diagnosis of dementia doesn't mean you have to be institutionalized today you know that
0: you can live with it in the community for a while and people need to be open and help each other yes and on the policy side of things, if you were talking to policy makers, decision makers who had open-ending budgets, <laughs> what kind of things would oh you <laughs> recommend that we try to do in Ireland to prepare for this uh, oncoming uh,
1: So I I think education, public education, first of all, make people aware, because if people don't know that they have a need, they're mm -hmm. not going to be able to ask for help. So first of all, you have to make the public aware and have, because things happen when the public ask for it. Mm -hmm. You know, breast cancer treatment, uh, all of these these illnesses that were stigmatized, autism, um, you have to create a, a, you know, I think this is the public, so maybe not the policy people just Mm -hmm. the public first of all has to know about this and then policymakers have to be educated about it yes they have to understand what it is and know about it and then be prepared to put resources in place Mm -hmm. save the emergency rooms first for things that the emergency room needs you know put measures in place for people in communities to prevent non-medical problems from becoming medical Medi- problems. Mm-hmm. And that's a cheap fix, mm-hmm. as opposed to a broken hip, which is an expensive fix. Yes, you know? yes. Um, and
0: So it's not uh, rocket science. Really. It's
1: not rocket It totally isn't rocket science. Mm-hmm. It is a paying attention to the basic everyday stuff that gets people in difficulties. Mm-hmm. And then having a system so that if they are hospitalized, that they're not in a noisy ward, you know, that you're prepared to... Because even a person with mild dementia, when you put them in a noisy hospital ward or an intensive care unit, it's it's an awful experience for them and Mm -hmm. they often come out in worse shape. So thoughtful planning of care as well. Um, You know, some surgeries might not absolutely have to happen Um, if the person if it's known that the person has dementia um there and the surgery has to happen there needs to be planning around that so i don't know if that's the policy maker stuff that's again a medical practice issue mm-hmm. um policy makers need to know that this is coming at them it's going to be very expensive and they need to have a plan in place and it might be cheaper to put community resources in place than to wait for it to the
0: tsunami to hit the, to hospitals, hit the hospitals
1: and the nursing homes
0: yes Um, and on a slightly different tack Mm -hmm. now altogether, if you were beginning your professional journey now, is there anything you'd do differently? Sure, why would I do anything differently? (laughs) Sounds like the perfect answer, Deirdre (laughs) and uh, unfortunately we're now going to have to draw this fascinating discussion to a close, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, it's very much appreciated So that's it for this episode Thank you to Dr. Deirdre Johnson for joining us on this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed it. Do subscribe on our SoundCloud channel, Spotify, and we're also on iTunes, so you won't miss out, and please let your colleagues know. I'm Helen McVeigh, and thanks for listening.